Welcome in again to RJ Bell's Dream Preview European Soccer Pod Episode 2. Coming off a very strong episode one. Thank you for the feedback. It's only going to get bigger and better from here. Talking with my man Griffin Warner. How you doing, Griffin? What did you make of the Community Shield? I'll just mention it quickly for those keeping score. The over did hit. My recommendation of over two and a half goals did hit, but Liverpool also won, like you predicted. And you think it wasn't just uh, it wasn't just one game. I think. You think there's significant takeaways we can take from the top two teams in the Premier League, Liverpool and Man City, off of Liverpool's 3-1 victory in the Community Shield this past Saturday. Yeah, um, thanks, Mackenzie. Thanks for the lead-in. Yes, I did play Liverpool, so uh, I'm glad we both got a win. I'm sorry if I kept you off from playing that over. Uh, there were a lot of goals scored in the quote-unquote friendly matches to start the seasons that I don't think were that friendly uh, a lot of people went into it. Um, a lot of the pundits all, all around were saying this is a glorified scrimmage. But I felt like based on how the way the season ended last year with only a one-point difference, that it just seemed to me that it was going to mean a lot more than that. I mean, both teams played about the best lineups they could. Um, the only thing really missing was Allison, the starting goalkeeper for Liverpool. Um, but their backup played really well. And I felt like both were going for it. Both were trying to start the season on the right foot, get the momentum going. And I thought it went, I mean, fairly well. as a back-and-forth match for sure. Uh, Manchester City, I think, is going to clearly get better, but they don't really know how to play with Erling Holland just yet. Uh, he certainly missed some chances, which was not great for uh, how that all went. But Liverpool, I felt like we're going to control the midfield. I felt like they did that. Um, they deserved, I think, a lot of the, the control of the game that they had. And then um, I don't know how Man City didn't get a red card for stopping a goal-scoring opportunity with an outstretched hand. But um, one really beautiful thing about betting soccer is you'll uh, you get to deal with a lot of those refereeing decisions that make you want to pull what little hair we have in our head out. <laughs> I did end up playing the over uh, pizza. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we got some money. Uh, as I work myself back into, I mean, I used to love so European soccer as much as the NBA, as much as any sport. As I work myself back into knowing uh, enough to make, you know, full bets on these things, I am happy to cash with that pizza bet. And I'm going to sound a little bit like RJ here. So what you're saying is the over hit and there was a red card in the box that should have been a penalty and arguably the most expensive or at least the most exciting young striker in the world, Erling Aland. Missed like two or three wide open chances that should have been easy goals. So there should have been like six or seven goals in this game is what you're, is what you're telling me. Um, I, it sounds like you're gloating. Uh, <laughs> penalty was given, and that's how uh, you would have gotten your clinching goal for that over. So um, justice was done there, though it was inexplicably missed on the pitch. Um, they went to review and gave the guy a yellow card. It should have been a red, in my humble opinion, and I'm like shocked that it wasn't a red. But... Regardless, uh, yes, there are a lot, of, a lot of chances, a lot of opportunities. I think what you'll find in soccer is the game is really about creating as many big chances as they call them as possible um, and then seeing how many actually go in because a lot of times people will miss the goal, the goalkeeper will stand on his head, do something crazy, someone will be slightly offside, or they'll kick the ball into the stands. There's, it's, it's honestly frustrating, maddening, but that's also the best part about it. And when you're betting the underdog and the other team keeps missing really easy chances, it is like the dream scenario that you could ask for. Yes, that was the clinching goal. That's a good point. There was a goal after that. I mean, there were so many goals in the game that I just wasn't worried about the ticket at any point. So, But um, <laughs> no. you mentioned Aland. 
Holland, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't do particularly great. And I thought it was ironic that uh, it was, we we mentioned it on the last podcast, there was no doubt that Man City was going to start him, even though he was brand new, because of what he meant to the direction of the team. Whereas uh, Liverpool's big striker signing, Darwin Nunes, he came off the bench, which was what we predicted, because it's going to be about everything goes through Salah and, and how well is the defense going to you know funnel the other team's attacks back into Salah's hand because he's going to be the main man. And Carvalho, you know, the 19-year-old they just signed, he's probably going to be like an understudy to Salah at this point uh, rather than starting. And the striker will be, be Firmino and between um, Diaz as they played in the community, seat, uh, community shield. But immediately he comes right in, 90th minute, and he gets a goal. Maybe it means nothing. It kind of reminded me of Juan Soto, who in the ninth inning when they're up 9-1 in his Padres debut, got that single. But the, the crowd in either case acted like it was nothing. It seemed like a big deal. It seemed like, okay, this is going to be a plan that works and it's only going to get better from here in Liverpool's perspective. So I asked you in the last podcast, who do you think is going to finish ahead of who, whom? Gun to your head. And we both said City. We both kind of liked the direction of Liverpool, but we both said minus 160, probably not going to buck that gun to our heads. I would probably say City's going to win the Premier League this year. However, you think... After seeing the Community Shield, do you think it's a little bit closer than you thought a week ago as far as who is the best team in the Premier League? I think we both kind of settled on we're not going to fight the market uh, here, and that's kind of what we thought in the first pod. I was pretty impressed by what I saw from Liverpool and still a little bit disappointed slash a little concerned about what Man City are this season. Um, I don't want to change my point of view so much for glorified friendly, but I do think matches like that mean a lot. The problem is, is that the the likelihood of the season being decided, certainly when they play each other, there's six points on the line. If either of these teams gets six, then that team probably wins the league. If if one has more points than the other, that's probably a big state statement and step. Um, but ultimately, when they drew both matches last year, that made it really kind of decided by the matches against other teams. Man City have a proven concept, and they beat teams a lot more easily in this league, I mean, more easily than Liverpool do. Um, but from where I sit, I was really impressed with Liverpool. I felt like bringing in Nunez off the bench and being that he wasn't, I mean, he's still a very expensive signing, um, but he was he didn't have the kind of fanfare that Erling Holland did um, entering the team. And I think that allowed him to really come in off the bench and not be the focal point from, there's going to be a lot of pressure on Erling Holland's shoulders he has had real, real struggles in the past of staying healthy. I don't expect him to be uh, healthy and out there for uh, most matches this year. I feel like it's just based on his injury history. That seems like really unrealistic. Um, and I got to say, Nunez came off the bench. He was the one that drew the penalty by heading the ball. It was not a good header. It was not going to go on target or go in the net. But he uh, cleverly, I don't think it was intentional, but he cleverly headed it off the, the outstretched arm for the handball that resulted in the penalty. So I think you get an assist for that in, in fantasy premier league. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I still, I felt like it was close initially. Um, I just, I'm starting to get a little bit more and more negative on city every time I think about it. And, and I honestly feel like Tottenham are, are a team that also can cause them some problems. So I don't, I still think it's, it's a two horse race based on what they can do against their opponents. But I just, it seems to me that this is a lot more of a toss up than the market is saying it is. I tend to agree with you. I tend to see these teams as more equal than the odds would say. But you bring up a couple of good points. City have won four of the last five Premier Leagues. 
However, they haven't accomplished their goal. You ask any city fan or any city staffer, day one, what's their goal? It's to win the Champions League, something they've never done. The reason they've been able to win the Premier League for the last five years and very, you know, by the skin of their teeth last year where they needed a three-goal stretch in a matter of five minutes just to claw themselves back into the league in the final day of the season. Before that, they lost the Champions League. And the reason they didn't win the Champions League is because they weren't as good as they needed to be. The reason they won the Premier League is because they are as deep as they needed to be. And that hasn't changed. They still have the biggest pockets. They still have two positions for every starter position that they need. And Liverpool, you mentioned, you know, injury history. It's going to be very difficult for them to put a as team as good as they did on Saturday, this community shield, every week, which is what City's going to be able to do without blinking. So minus 150 for City to still win the Premier League. That's probably fine numbers. However, in these cups, in the Champions League, I don't think I power rate City right now any higher than I do Liverpool. And in fact, I would probably power rate them lower because you mentioned Erling Haaland, very different style of play and early returns weren't good. So I mentioned it in the last pod, Pep Guardiola's system has never really incorporated a striker like him successfully. Not saying it can happen, but it hasn't happened so far might be difficult in the early months or, you know, even in, into the new year. City has that depth for a reason because it plays in the Premier League and it's very different from every other, you know, talk about different tracks or different races. It's a very different track in the Premier League because they play, you mentioned this in pre-production, almost exclusively two games per week where Spain does a lot of things to avoid that for their teams. Germany does a lot of things to avoid that for those teams. So this isn't a Premier League podcast. This is a sport, European sports betting podcast, and that's one of the best things about this landscape is that there's going to be a lot of leagues popping up, a lot of different opportunities, cups, etc. This Friday starts the Premier League. Next Friday, the second biggest league in Europe, La Liga begins. So very excited about that. We'll be hitting that up. Germany, I know, and France have started. We're going to incorporate, you know, introducing those teams and those uh, structures into our podcast as it goes along. But for today, we're going to do the Premier League and we're going to do the top six teams we mentioned in the last podcast in the league by far with a bullet. It's not even close. Man City, Man U, Arsenal, Chelsea, Liverpool, and Tottenham. They spend the most. They're by far the biggest in the city or in the country. And they by far have the best talented teams and the best odds to win. So, as an introduction, not only into the Premier League, but into European soccer, we're going to talk about the week one games for these six teams. We're going to handicap them, and we're going to come up with the best bet. In pre-production, I said, I kind of think this is a good wager. I haven't, you know, I'm not fully knowledgeable about all these teams as well as you, but I came up to you with a certain wager, and almost instantaneously, you're like, well, bro, that's my best bet. So that's good. That I'm excited about. We're going to talk about that. You're going to have your best bet, and I'm going to loudly endorse it because it makes sense to me, and you're going to explain it much better than I could. But before we get to that bet, we're going to start on Friday. If you're listening to this, it's probably Friday morning, and the Premier League begins today. Crystal Palace is hosting Arsenal. Arsenal lost striker Adebayang to Barcelona, but they're still one of the big six teams. They're still clinging on to that. Newcastle money might you know, try to change those things in the near future. But what do you make of Arsenal's upcoming season? And Arsenal is minus a half goal at Crystal Palace. What do you make of the matchup? 
So I, I'm very interested to see what Arsenal become this season. They've essentially had to re- rebuild their really young side that have been adding a lot of talent. They did bring in and kind of stole away one of the important pieces to Manchester City in Gabriel Jesus, uh, a Brazilian who's going to be really important to the Brazilian roster in the World Cup, which I know we're going to be talking a lot about as we go down the line as well. Um, Crystal Palace are also a younger team, but have far fewer resources than Arsenal do. Um, pretty much any of these six teams that you listed have more money than God, it seems like. And I mean, certainly some teams in this pack have more than another. Um, but from where I sit with Arsenal, they had a big run last year. They were not in Europe, so they were able just to really focus on one match a week. I think that's going to be a little bit of a problem this year for them because uh, they ended up kind of crashing out of Champions League when the pressure heated up towards the end of last season. They do have the Europa League, but that means they play Thursday, Sunday every week, which is a pretty quick turnaround when Champions League, a lot of times you'll play Tuesday, then Saturday, or Wednesday, then Saturday, which doesn't sound like a lot of time either, but it kind of means a lot more because you're going to bigger cities, whereas Europa League, you're kind of going to small places like you could be going to the Czech Republic and to Latvia and other teams like that, depending on kind of who you're uh, saddle up against. But in regards to this matchup and, and Arsenal for the season, I like what they've done uh, in building their team. I have a lot of faith in their manager, uh, a former assistant to Pep Guardiola at Manchester City is Mikel Arteta, uh, a Basque, a guy from the Basque country in Spain, um, who's seemed like a, a pretty good manager that has struggled a little bit with keeping his team's discipline. They're like one of the leaders in red card offenses ever since he took over. I imagine that's something they're trying to change, but they've spent a lot of money on their side. They're owned by uh, the Glazers, the same ownership group um, that own, I think, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in the NFL. So they have the money, and they're trying to figure out kind of how to use it in the best way. And what they've done is essentially pushed out some of their older players like Patch, uh, like Obama Yang, um, as, as you mentioned. But they've kind of filled that in with some recent signings and younger players and I think the depth is there for them to be really, really strong this year. We'll see how they handle Europe. But um, I think they're going to have a little bit of trouble in this opening matchup. Uh, if you want to get in there, or if you want me to keep going, let me know. Yeah, Odegaard is going to have his first day as captain of the Arsenal squad, Friday versus Crystal Palace. You think that might not go so well for him? What do you think? Well, I, don't, I wouldn't put it on, on him. I wouldn't blame Odegaard for it by any means. But... Uh, and sorry, it's the crunk. It's the crankies that own um, Arsenal. I thought so because the Glazers famously Tom Brady before he retired or during his retirement was talking to Cristiano Ronaldo, and Ronaldo was like, uh, "You retiring?" And you couldn't hear what Tom Brady said, but he gave a look like, "Yeah, it would be." And then before the end of the weekend, he was announcing his anti-retirement. So I was, I was when I heard the Glazers, I thought Tom Brady, Ronaldo. Man U, Bucks, so, all right. You're right. Glazers, You're right. Ars- Glazers Bucks, and who owns Arsenal? The Stan Kroenke, the, the, who owned the Rams and moved them to L.A. Uh, from gotcha. St. Louis. Cool. Yes, so my bad. So many NFL owners that also own Premier League teams and have more money in, than anyone else in the world. Then uh, just It's amazing the American influence financially in a game that everyone in England thinks Americans have no clue about. But regardless, sorry to get back to it. I, I'm glad I looked it up because I was like, I think I just said that. And I'm not sure that I'm right. All good. But um, now that we're back, uh, I don't. I'm not going to blame it on Odegaard, but I do think he's clearly at 23 years old, very young to be captaining a side, especially with the expectations that Arsenal have. Um, but Crystal Palace were kind of a lion's den last year. 
they were really famous for having these Monday night home games and just like, I don't know if everyone's super sauced or whatever for it. Uh, but there's definitely not a lot of English people that are afraid of the pub. So um, it was, I think it's going to be a, a really great atmosphere. Arsenal went on the road for the opener last year against Brentford, a, a much lower team, uh, or at least expected to be lower and lost and weren't really even competitive in that first match. I think they're a little bit more experienced this year, but I just feel like it's another London matchup. Both of these teams are in London, different parts of the city, um, which is a little bit of rivalry, but wouldn't be the top rival for either of these teams. But Crystal Palace, they have a former Arsenal uh, legend as their manager in Patrick Vieira. And Crystal Palace just were one of those sides that um, I think we're building something last year. And I think they're going to have a huge crowd support behind them. And if Arsenal go to, go behind early, I think it's going to be really tough for them to claw back into the game. I do feel like there's an energy for these lower or expected to be lower table teams in the beginning of the season, just to avoid, uh, you know, just to set the things in the right direction where teams like Arsenal and Man United really have to think not only the Premier League, but several competitions, you know, months of progression, bringing in players in the January window. It's kind of a different landscape where teams like Brighton, Fulham, Crystal Palace, I feel like they're going to be thrilled if they can get a tie week one. That's that's the Super Bowl as far as they're concerned because that just sets things in the right direction. Uh, looking at the odds, the Premier League title odds, uh, we, we've been talking about City and Liverpool the last week or so. They're clearly the top two. Then Tottenham, Chelsea are very close in the odds. Then Arsenal and Man United. And I think looking at their rosters, I know who I think has a better roster. Man United, the more expensive team, the team with the bigger pockets. However, Arsenal have slightly better odds in you know, some of these markets. And it seems like there's a buzz about Arsenal that's kind of the opposite of what you're hearing about United. So I'll just ask you plainly, who do you think finishes ahead of whom in this year's Premier League? Arsenal, the scrappy team with the good coach that doesn't quite have the biggest pockets, although they're pretty rich, or the evil, the evil empire with the disgruntled superstar, with the better players, who finishes ahead of who? Manchester United or Arsenal? I'll take Arsenal. Um, I think they have more going for them. Uh, they have the cohesion that has not existed at Manchester United for years, it feels like. So I'll go Arsenal. I tend to agree with you. And we're going to talk about Manchester United's first matchup uh, later on in this show. But first, before that, we talked about Friday's Arsenal-Crystal Palace game. Saturday, Liverpool, they're laying, if you do use the Asian handicap, 1.75 goals. So they're expected to win by between one and a half or two goals. The Vegas market tells us, and they're at Fulham, newly promoted side. What do you make of this matchup? Uh, do you see any profitable opportunities, or is the line set here at minus 1.75 over under two and a half about right to you? I'm trying my best this year to not fall into the trap of backing teams that I think are decent that are getting huge, huge point spreads from the good teams. Cause ultimately the spending gap between uh, the value of, of the Liverpool club at over $950 million versus Fulham at just over 200. Uh, the amount and the discrepancy between those two teams is incredible and significant. Um, Fulham were great in the championship last year, but are a recently promoted side. And it's a very different game from playing offensively and crushing teams um, and trying to go for it versus having to play defensively, sit back in your own 30-yard uh, box, or 18-yard box, but in the, your own 30 yards of the pitch and trying to defend for 90 minutes because that is exhausting. It will really challenge these players that really were not 
meant to be defensive. And Fulham hasn't done a lot with this team. They've had they've been kind of what's called a yo-yo club, going up and down from the the Premier League to the Championship, the league below that um, over the last few seasons. And a lot of it is because they went up to the Premier League, they spent a ton of money and got relegated because it didn't work. And then they kind of now it seems like they're kind of scared of that. So they're trying to feed off the momentum of winning the championship last year and they won it handily. So they that's usually a good indicator, I think, for teams staying up uh, once they move to the bigger league, when they've won the league below. But we're going to see, and there's going to be some baptism by fire here because Liverpool are so strong. They have so much talent. I don't think that there is really much opportunity for Fulham because Liverpool are going to be stepping on their neck the whole day, the whole night, the whole game day. Um, from start to finish. And Fulham, I think, are going to be fortunate to lose 1-0. Um, they might get on the score sheet, but if they are trying to push to score goals in not a non-counterattacking sense, um, they're going to be wide open and Liverpool will punish them. Yeah, if there's any team in Europe that could, it would be Liverpool with Mon- uh, not Mane. Mane's gone to Bayern Munich, but Salah playing as well as ever at the end of last year and to start the Community Shield earned himself a goal. You mentioned Fulham's playing style, and that made me think of their striker, Alexander Mitrovic, who played 44 games in the championship for Fulham and scored 43 goals. He was Lewandowski or Samuel Eto'o back in the day. He was like the number one guy in the nation. He scored a goal a game. That doesn't happen, especially in the lower leagues. That doesn't happen. Well, what do you think? How many goals do you think he gets in this Premier League campaign? Over under 12? Like, it's such a different animal. What do you think? So, Mitrovic was there um, the last time Fulham were up at this level and was really quiet and had a pretty poor season. Um, even lost a lot of playing time. Like, they were choosing to play other strikers who had scored less, uh, far fewer goals in their careers because he didn't really fit. He wasn't really making... Um, I think it was just a, a tougher league with better defenders, and Fulham weren't in a position where they were attacking a lot. Now, Mitrovic plays for the Serbian national team and will be in the World Cup and is an important part for them. And they got there by really upsetting Portugal. So he's still really talented as possible. He's grown a lot from two years ago in the Premier League. I just don't think he's going to have that many opportunities. And that Fulham, if they want to play an open style of football like they did in the championship, they're going to set themselves up to be punished by the best teams in the league, but also even the middle of the road teams. I think they're going to need to really adopt an ident- defensive identity that they have not shown or did not show last season and kind of struggled with two years ago because they were so defensive and had to focus so much on that side of the pitch that they weren't able to get out and get up the pitch and really attack. And I think that's the biggest problem for Mitrovic is he's a big guy. He's probably most threatening on, on set pieces and certainly from the penalty spot, but recently promoted sides are unlikely to get a lot of penalties and I think he's going to really need some speed to counterattack, and I just don't think he has that in him. So I would probably go under 12 goals, uh, even though it sounds really, really low, because I just don't know that Fulham are going to have a lot of opportunities for him. I think they're really going to have to strike on the counter, and I don't think he's really going to be involved in that because that's not the type of player that he is. Yes, that's the catch-22. Do you cater towards your best player because he just had 43 goals last year, or do you play like Fulham – should play in the Premier League against these bigger clubs and park the bus and do everything you can do to get out of their 1-1. And if you do that, does that uh, discourage Mitrovic and does that make him not the player that got you out of the championship last year and got you into the Premier League? Who knows? Maybe they've been talking about this expressly. Maybe they have a philosophy that they have in the locker room where it's 
very, you know, best of both worlds. It's all possible. Until I see it, that seems like a, a, a question mark. That seems like a, a, a tension that doesn't easily get relieved. So I'll be interested in looking at that. But Liverpool coming off a big win, no necessarily extra motivation. Probably won't be playing Liverpool, but until I see uh, what Fulham looks like at this level, I won't be playing them either. Also on Saturday, Tottenham is laying a goal and a half. No 1.75, no 1.25. Nice, even. Goal and a half, even money. Hosting Southampton. What do you make of this matchup? What do you think of Conte? Getting a lot of buzz as the new special one with the counterattacking style. What do you think of this team? introduction of Richarlson from Everton. What do you think of their uh, prospects for the new year? And we talked about Man U Arsenal. Natural question with Tottenham is, do you think they can finish ahead of Chelsea uh, this year in the Premier League? And what do you think about their matchup with Southampton? Sure. I'll start with, can they finish ahead of Chelsea? My answer would be yes. I think um, everyone is buying in and that makes me a little bit concerned because I don't think there's a lot of people that think Tottenham are going to struggle this season. Um, I, I got to say, I've been... Drinking the Kool-Aid, though, I think a little bit more than most most recently and feel like um, seeing the title odds coming down on on Tottenham, I feel like they have a lot more in them and can, under the tutelage of Antonio Conte, I think they have a little bit more of a challenge for the title than I think it is being considered. There's a a huge drop-off between Manchester City, odds-on favorite, Liverpool as a slight underdog at like plus 200 or, or around there, 250 maybe, to win it. And then it dropped all the way down to Tottenham in the teens to one. Um, I feel like Tottenham's only been getting bet. And I feel like I agree with the market in in thinking that I think they've done a ton of business to bring in really strong players. And that's something that Antonio Conte whines about regularly, but he really took a team in like Inter Milan who um, had been the second fiddle to Juventus in Italy for almost a decade, if not a full decade and won the league in Syria A with them. He's won with Chile, with excuse me, with Chelsea before in the Premier League. And I feel like the way that Tottenham are going to play a defensive counterattacking style, as you mentioned, is going to be really great for them when they play the best teams in the league, those top six that we've been talking about so much in this show. I think the biggest concern then is what they do against the weaker teams, because I feel like sometimes when you move from a counterattacking outfit to trying to score goals, it's it's hard to be that efficient when you don't have a lot of chances. Um, but I, I think Tottenham are going to finish ahead of Chelsea. I like them a lot, and that's also because I like them and feel like Chelsea have a lot of problems on their side. Would you like me to get into uh, this weekend's matchup, or do you want to comment on that? No, I'll let you get into this matchup. Southampton or Southampton? That's my only question. Because there's only – it's Southampton, right? But there's only one H. How did how – did, go ahead. Southampton, like one word, Southampton. So – only one agent. <laughs> yes, it's yes. doing double duty. It it, it baffles me, but uh, I guess they're going to lose lose by goal and a half. Yeah. Um, so Southampton, they um, they're they're one of these teams. So they is like Southampton. I think were who brought up Mane or was it? Yeah. They they sold Van Dyke to Liverpool, and so they're kind of known as one of those development clubs. They, I've kind of learned not to doubt them in their signings because they generally find the diamonds in the rough because that's their business model. They have to or else they'll get relegated. But they closed the season about as poorly as anybody could. Um, they have a really strong player in the midfield who plays for the English national team, James Ward-Prowse. But 
unfortunately, he's kind of alone on an island. He's their creator. He's like their their point guard, essentially. But he doesn't have a, like a Carl Malone or a center to throw it to. He's kind of alone on an island, and their defense is uh, not very good. They basically earn their points and stay in the league because they beat up on the inferior competition. Now, they certainly have, have, have given some teams trouble, but Tottenham have had a history of really, really uh, – pulling them apart and scoring a bunch of goals. So uh, I don't know that Tottenham is built to kill teams, and that's, I think, going to hurt them in the title race. But I don't think that I have any interest in betting Southampton to to hang within a goal of Tottenham. And that's always the question is, how good are you overall? And how good good are you in a Champions League-style environment where you're playing a top-20 team in Europe? And how good are you versus the 60th best team in Europe against the newly promoted teams? And... It seems to me that teams that have uh, had that talisman coach, like Arsene Wenger forever with Arsenal, he'd kill the Cups, but he often would come up fourth or fifth in the Premier League because he didn't have the depth, talking about City, talking about Liverpool, to win on a consistent basis. This is one of those depth games against Southampton, uh, whereas against the Chelsea's and against the Arsenal's, maybe their style would be more will be more successful. You mentioned the title odds. Yes, you have seen... The market moved drastically. This was from John Hewing of BetMGM. 24% of Premier League tickets and 32% of the handle are on the Spurs to win the league. That's crazy. One out of four people are betting that Tottenham's going to win the league. I mean, Manchester United fans are everywhere across the world. Arsenal, you see their shirts everywhere. Chelsea, 25% more than any other te- any other team. Backers are betting, at least at MGM, on the Spurs to win it all. They were 30 to one to start. They're now 12 to one consensus. So pretty much they were where Arsenal was 30 to one. Now they're even better than where Chelsea is at 12 to one. So a lot of optimism with Antonio Conte's side. We'll see if it pays off this Saturday, moving on to Sunday. And I'll give you some credit. You had Everton, a fade Everton jacket on last time I talked to you. I think you were talking about getting a fade Everton tattoo. You were all about it. Well, money, not only your money, a lot of money has come in on Everton to be relegated. They're playing Chelsea this Saturday. We'll get into this matchup. But they were 5-1 to one to be relegated back when we were talking about it, when we recommended it, I think at plus 450. They're now 3-1 to one to be relegated. It's not all striker Charles uh, Richarlison leaving. A lot of pessimism with Everton. Before we get into their matchup with Chelsea... Uh, why don't you re- reiterate your point why you don't think this is the year that Everton State, or you think there's a good chance at 4-1 to one, you bet it, that Everton will be relegated at the end of the season? Sure. So here's my relegation thoughts on Everton. They really struggled last year and were very fortunate to survive. I felt like it was good fortune that got them there rather than any sort of talent. They lost for Charleston, who uh, left in the transfer window. They sold him and have not really reinvested that money into the team because you would think that if they sold an offensive player, they would bring one in. They just lost, uh, I I guess, good fortune, bad fortune for them, but good fortune for uh, the words that I said. Their, I guess, heir apparent or replacement who kind of played together with Richarlison in the forward attacking range, Dominic Calvert-Lewin, he hurt his knee and is out, looks like three to four weeks, but... What I've kind of noticed is what you, once you get back on the pitch, that doesn't mean you're uh, flying or excelling or really scoring a lot. And he missed a lot of time last year as well. So he was really someone that I was worried was going to get injured or really just not even be effective this season. Um, so they have a lot of problems. And 
unfortunately, despite being one of the biggest clubs in England, they don't have the resources. Um, other clubs last year that were in the dog fight, the relegation fight with them had protested and complained to the league that they were violating financial provisions. Um, I don't know that anything has happened with that, but I think that speaks to their financial situation and the dilemma that they have. And a lot of times you'll see these bad clubs or excuse me, big clubs that are struggling in a season. They'll reach in the transfer market because you can, there's essentially another trade deadline in January. Um, but I don't know that they're going to have the resources to do it. And so that will mean they'll bring in players that other teams don't want rather than grabbing players that they really need that can help them. And I just, I, I feel like they're one of those teams that had a pretty, had much longer odds than I think des- they deserved, probably because there's a lot of teams that could be relegated from this league. Um, which is also one of the reasons why I think everyone, the more you watch soccer, you'll love it. But I think they're going to have a lot of trouble. Their defense isn't very good. Their manager is a attacking manager that was used to come from Chelsea. And I feel like they're going to be lost this year. Yeah. Relegation's awesome. I don't know how you could watch, if you're a European soccer fan, how you don't come to America with pitchforks, or at least call me and tell me where I need to go with my pitchforks to get relegation in the modern NBA the modern NFL, I don't know if there's enough players to field enough teams for the NFL, but maybe just the NBA. Because the last day of the season, about like 20, not 20 teams, there's only 20 teams in the league, but half the league is either going to make or break their season on that last day. And everything they did to that point and all the mistakes, and I should have subbed that guy, it all matters, yes, because it's all going to factor into that final point total, but it can all be either made into a, you know, like Everton, they got they got through it. They got they got lucky and they got through it. It all didn't matter. All that bad stuff that happened. Or comes home to roost. Going home. Your club is what'd you say last time? Uh, uh, English Premier League club that gets relegated loses like half its value. Or how much did you say? I mean, that's probably what I said. That's probably what I usually say. I don't have the math to back that. But they they call the promotion game the playoff game to get into the league the most expensive game in football. Um, and I think what you see in, in soccer, especially. Um, especially now that the U.S. dollar is, is, is climbing around the euro, potentially being worth more. So you could potentially call it soccer. But in this podcast, as we're talking European football, um, it's it's one of those games where unfortunately you'll, you'll see these really wealthy people um, buy these clubs, and then once they get relegated, they'll lose half the squad's value and probably have to sell the team because their life earnings aren't enough to sustain it. It's definitely a rich person's game, uh, but we get to watch it and kind of watch these – owners basically having heart attacks in, in the stands every match, which is awesome. It matters. All 38 games matter. I, th- I mean, not for every team, but you don't know if it's going to matter at the end of the season. For pretty much every team, all 38 games is something to to care about and covet. So that starts tonight, or that starts this weekend, rather. Chelsea is minus 0.75 goals. So minus a half, lay a number, minus one, lay a different number. Right around there, they're, about, they're, both, they're supposed to win by about a goal, a little bit less. And they're at Everton Goodison Park. Chelsea obviously adds Raheem Sterling. What do you make of their season prospects? And do you see any wagers or any edges in this particular matchup at Everton? Well, from where I sit and kind of picking Everton as a relegation candidate, um, it's really hard for me to want to get behind them and back them. Now, I will say their crowd really came up big time for them towards the end of the season when it really looked dire, they had some great results and really from some really tough positions, trailing in matches, looking completely lethargic, lifeless, whatever you want to say. Um, I think their fans will have a major impact on this matchup, um, but I don't think it'll be enough just based on the difference in talent. 
So Chelsea's defense has really been what they've been known for, their calling card, since Thomas Tuchel got there after uh, being dismissed from Paris Saint-Germain. And I don't know that that part of Chelsea will change. They've had some turnover, and some of their players have have left in the defense, which is definitely makes it a little bit more concerning. It's better clubs. But I don't see anybody really on the Everton roster that can cause them too many problems. The, the big question, I think, for Chelsea in this match, this season, and especially for covering the spread in this match, but, but mainly for the season as well, is how many goals can they score? I think they're going to be fine and not conceding, uh, and Everton won't threaten them too much offensively, just barring some crazy corner kick or odd handball, weird bounce of the ball that results in a penalty. I feel like Chelsea are in good position to, to keep a clean sheet and, and not allow Everton to score. And then it really just depends how many Chelsea score. If they get one, that wins you half your wager, if you lay three quarters of a goal. If they get two, you're you're in the money, you're in the gravy train. And I feel like Everton's going to need to keep this match as low scoring as possible, and I just don't think that they can do it. You mentioned Chelsea's defense, one of my favorite players to watch. Even in my in my hiatus as a, as a huge soccer fan that I'm getting back into, I would always find occasion once or twice a year to watch Nicola Conte play because so much is made of the Messis and the Ronaldos and the Neymars, and obviously you can't really make Sports Center if you don't score a goal. But as far as the modern NFL, what uh, NFL modern soccer, what functions, what matters, turning defense into offense and ending your opponent's opportunities while at the same time creating off- offensive opportunities. My favorite player was always Andre Iniesta doing the same thing. Not too many people better at it than Nicola Conte. He just ends the other teams. Whatever you're doing, it stops immediately when it gets to Conte and he's about as good as anybody spinning it around and uh, flipping it in the other direction. I bring that up because you mentioned pre-production. You think he's one of the best players in the world. Who else is in the conversation and what do you make of Nicola Conte? Well, I I love him. Um, They say it's like playing 12 on 11 because he basically covers two positions, which is incredible, important, all those sort of things. I think my big concern is his health. Um, he's 31 years old, which, believe it or not, is actually old in soccer. Um, yep. But he's really important for them. He showed them actually a lot of offense when he was playing for them last year when they were really struggling offensively. He's just an awesome player, and I think he's essential for um, for Chelsea to really reach the, the levels that they expect to reach. Um, I think there are other players like him throughout the world that don't really get the press or publicity. I think Frankie de Jong, who's a a central defensive midfielder or a central midfielder for Barcelona, he was talked a lot about going to uh, Manchester United. And really, I think Barcelona need to move him financially uh, to register some of the players they signed. But um, there are a lot of other players. He's not as defensive-minded as Conte would be. Um, But Conte is so important because he can stop the breaks he can also start them and being able to kind of switch it over from defense to offense really quickly is the way that you get teams stretched games stretched it's the way you get um, counterattacks that can lead you to three on twos when you're usually used to breaking down uh, a huge back line fulfilled with three four five six defenders and that's where most of the goals come from are the the breaks that allow you to uh, have a numbers advantage five thousand to one might have heard that Number out there when you heard about the Premier League, Leicester City won as 5,000 to 1 in 2016. A lot of people say that shows that there's no sure things, that there's a fluke, that anything could happen. I think it shows that Nicola Conte was really super underrated that year. And so was Mares, and so was Joey Varde. I feel like that team was like 10 to 1 with talent, even though nobody knew any of those names. And that's why they were 5,000 to 1. So when you're watching some of these non top six teams, 
who knows? There might be a young best player in the world candidate that's just getting his bones. Uh, Grealish was at Aston Villa. Then he got the big check, got to Man City. Now he's one of the best uh, attacking midfielders. Uh, So let's go to Man City. Also on Sunday, Man City is laying minus one and a half. They're at Westham. They're awful loss to start their season in the Community Shield. What do you make of their season outlook? You said you were a little bit more pessimistic on them after seeing seeing them in the Community Shield. Do they have anything to worry about this Sunday at Westham? West Ham. Yeah, um, I think they do. So West Ham, they play in the old uh, Olympic Stadium, the London Stadium, I believe, as it's called, because for some reason they don't have a lot of sponsorship names in England, but that's probably neither here nor there. Um, West Ham, so they don't have as great of a crowd aspect because they have like essentially a, a running track around their stadium that they cover up with some sort of covering, blah, 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 so it doesn't look like an eyesore. Um, but West Ham, they basically came from a relegation fight uh, during the pandemic season to then qualifying for Europe and then doing it again, making it nearly to the Champions League uh, through automatic qualification if you win the Europa League. Um, I think they are a really tough team for Man City because they essentially have they have really, really tall players. Um, they're in a, in a game like soccer, you don't have a ton of I mean, it's generally beneficial to be shorter because you're closer to the ground, you're more compact, it's easier in in that sort of way. Whereas West Ham, they have a lot of giants that are going to be in there for set pieces and for aerial duels that unfortunately Manchester City just don't have a lot of size for. What I think West Ham are best at is sitting back, countering, um, playing in a defensive type of, of mold and then trying to run as fast as you can down the pitch as soon as the ball turns over. And I think that they're going to have that opportunity because Manchester City are like routinely putting nine of their 11 players up the pitch essentially, or probably eight is more fair. But I think you could argue that they even have center backs playing offensively at times. Um, We saw some really poor defending from Man City in the community shield. Now West Ham don't have the offensive players or really the talent that Liverpool do, but they have a really great game plan strategy. David Moyes, their manager, uh, formerly of many, many clubs, but including Manchester United, he seems to have a defensive mindset and kind of has the guys playing the way he wants them to. And they've had pretty good success over the last couple of years. Um, I think of all of these matches that we've mentioned so far, I'm very interested in the plus one and a half on West Ham, um, as I think that they will make it tough on Manchester City. Certainly, and, and as, as I've already said on this podcast, I'm trying to be a little bit more cognizant of not trying to play a team just to hope they lose one nil or something. Um, but I think that Man City trying to work in Erling Holland, it's, it's a very difficult situation for them because they haven't played with a striker. And I think they're so used to playing a certain way. I think he will end up opening up defenses more than they had previously, but it's a different way. And it's something they have to get used to that. I, I don't think they have just yet. Yeah. On the FIFA preset, just what their, what their formation is, the FIFA video game, they have what they call a four, three, three false nine where Phil Foden, instead of being a striker, is about 20 yards behind where a striker would be, and he just becomes you know, an up-the-pitch midfielder, and you play that way. And that works great, often. It's not exactly where you want the 6-3, uh, all the physical, you know, Greek god, like very fast, very strong. All those, all those adjectives apply to Eric Holland, like they applied to a guy like Cristiano Ronaldo. Like, it's... it's special when you see it it's different not only is he more talented than most physically he's bigger stronger than almost anybody else on the pitch in almost every game you see that doesn't really work 
for the Spanish national team or Pep Guardiola's Barcelona? Will it work for Pep Guardiola's Manchester City? We'll see. But against a team that specializes in kind of absorbing pressure like West Ham, where they're going to come off the counterattack, yeah, I don't mind the plus one and a half. I don't mind the plus one and a half at all. But that's not my best bet, and it's not your best bet. I asked you in pre-production, I sent you an email, hey, you have best bet, man? And then right before you told me what it was, like literally seconds before, I sent off my email that included, hey, I got a best bet. I'm not sure. I want your thoughts on it first. And it ended up being the same thing. So we go to Sunday. Manchester United is laying one goal, hosting Brighton. And you have an opinion on this particular wager, one which I agree with. So why don't you lay it on the people? What is your best bet for English Premier League week one? I'm going to go with Brighton plus one goal right now. So um, there's a big discrepancy in the gambling world of soccer where plus three quarters, uh, plus one half, comma, plus one, uh, that three quarter line means a lot versus plus one. Because when you have that plus one, that means a single goal loss. You push, all money is returned to you. Whereas that plus three quarters bet, you'd lose half your bet if they lost by a single goal. I'm watching this very closely. Like Bet Online currently has plus three quarters with plus money next to it, getting odds. Um, the way the market usually works is, or what I've learned in the, the years I've been watching this, the big teams, the big clubs with all the fans, they get bet heavier than anybody else. If they don't, that's almost a better indicator because that means there's a ton of money coming in on the other side. Uh, but I'm sure there's plenty of other podcasts on the pregame network that talk about market dynamics and such. Um, from my perspective, I'm trying my best and I'm willing to pay a little bit more in juice. Uh, for instance, Brighton right now and Bovada are plus one minus 122. So it's a significant financial difference, but ultimately the, the ability to push means a lot. It's, I guess you could compare it to buying it, buying a hook on plus three in the NFL or plus seven, probably plus three is more realistic. Um, but I think it's really valuable in this sport, especially one where there are so few goals. Um, now for the actual matchup, Manchester United, our strongest team, used to be the biggest club in the world. Maybe Barcelona have overtaken them, surpassed them. Um, but they are the famous ones that everyone knows. They are very talented, have a lot of great players. They have way more talent than Brighton could ever dream of. However, the problem is they don't really work as a cohesive unit. They have... A lot of things that I, I think you're going to touch on a little bit off the off the pitch um, that have some big problems or on the pitch. It's kind of related uh, with our big star, Cristiano Ronaldo, who formerly played for Manchester United, then was rumored to be going to their hated rival, Manchester City, last season until something worked out and brought him back to Manchester United, the red side of the city. He is um, a great player, still produces, but ultimately has kind of stunted the growth of the rest of Manchester United. And they're bringing in a manager now who's trying to deal with that ego, which has not been going great, as the media would already tell you. Um, and it's been covered ad nauseum. Just uh, search Manchester United, probably the first thing that comes up. But in sp specifically to X's and O's, their new manager came in from the Eredivisie. It's the top league in uh, the Netherlands or Holland. He coached the best team there that were by far Ajax, the best team by far. Um, very few... Teams could compete with them. They do have some good teams in that league that are a little bit underrated. Um, but this is a different ball game here where all these teams are so much better. And I'm really curious to see what Eric Ten Hag, their new manager, can do with a team that's just unfortunately going to have to have a lot of growing pains as it tries to eventually maybe remove Ronaldo from playing as, as often as he had 
and make him more of a bit player or really move him on to another club, which I think is going to be the most important thing that they do. Um, but speaking to this Manchester United team, they're at home where, believe it or not, you'd think home field advantage, it does matter in this sport, but sometimes it can really hurt you rather than help you because the Boo Birds come out very quickly, especially on the teams that think that they're better than everyone else, which I think is the definition of a Manchester United sickness. Um, and when I think about this matchup, Brighton are a smaller club. They have a well-established manager who has been rumored to be going to bigger clubs for a while, but has yet to move on officially. Um, his style really is is a, a, a noble one where they try to possess the ball a lot, but they're good at it. They're good at controlling the ball and, and leaving their opponent very few chances. And that's what Brighton's going to essentially do. Um, they're going to use as much of the 90 minutes as possible to prevent Manchester United from having the ball, which means they'll have less opportunity to go score goals and less opportunity to score that second to beat us. Um, I think it's going to be a very low scoring game over unders two and a half, which is a little bit high to me for a Brighton game. But I guess when Manchester United is involved, you generally have to make that, that number seem a little bit higher. Um, but I think from where I sit and that plus one is really important to me, I believe that Brighton have the ability to control the ball, to limit a kind of lost Manchester United team with a new manager that has a lot to prove a lot of pressure on them. And I just don't see a, a team that has never really shown that it knew how to play together um, under this manager because he hasn't been there. They couldn't do it under multiple managers last year uh, and managers before that the last few seasons, they've been really struggling. And I don't think it'll all of a sudden just come together for a multi-goal win, win in their debut. I agree wholeheartedly. You're talking about that off the field stuff. So their new coach, Eric Ten Hag, recently played a guy you might have heard of named Cristiano Ronaldo. He played him in a game against a Spanish outfit in a friendly. What's notable about that game, it was the first time that disgruntled star Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo, CR7, suited up for United this summer. He had a, a personal matter they had he had to take care of during their uh, during their Asia trip, and then he came back and he was getting in shape. And okay, whatever the reason, it's the first time he played for Manchester United during their preseason warm up. He was substituted early. He then left Old Trafford. He left the arena. He got in his car. He drove. I don't know if he saw the rest of the game on Sports Center or what, but he wasn't there during their post game discussion. Obviously, the new manager is in a, a dilemma at that point because your best player has sent a clear message that he cares not for your regime, for your authority. He doesn't want any of it, but he is your best player. And he's also a guy that unhappy is a very loud, big presence in the entire city of Manchester, let alone in the locker room. So he said, well, he you know weighed what he had to weigh and said, this is what I'm going to do. Talk to the press. I'm going to say, that is unacceptable. Leaving a game early, that is unacceptable. And then he says, I told them that it's unacceptable. We are a team, a squad, and you should stay until the end. And that baffles me that that was his response. Because obviously it's unacceptable. A guy doesn't leave your locker room and go home and drive in his Ferrari to his nice Manchester cottage and then hear about the end of the game on TV because he thinks it's acceptable. He has decided to act out, to disregard your authority, and your response to that has to be, I think, a little stronger, whether it's suspension or do what the 49ers are doing with Jimmy G. You don't have to practice, man. You can work off into the sideline. We'll get you traded. Don't worry about it. But that's not the angle that they're taking. 
And via Play Sports reports, Ronaldo, after this latest event, is unlikely to play a large role against Brighton. Translation, he's still in the roster. He's still expected to play and suit up. I think that just sends bad vibes. And I actually don't think that's going to happen. I think between now and the story being written and the tip-off, they're going to make the decision. He can't play for us. We have to move on. We have to not take this lightly. This clear act of of, uh, of disobedience, of, of thumbing your nose at the organization. Whether or not they make that decision and sit Ronaldo, which hurts their chances, or they don't and they play Ronaldo and it kind of shows where they are as a club, I don't like what it portends. And I was listening to the Athletic Football Podcast, and one of the things they talked about as a goal for Manchester United at the end of the season, have an identity in May. Have an identity in May, and you will have had a successful season for Manchester United. Because you mentioned it, they are the biggest club in the world. I know Real Madrid and Barcelona technically by a few dollars may have slightly more value at this point in time. But if you took the big span of history, who's the biggest club in the world? It's the Manchester United Red Devils. That's who it is. And this is a bad part of their history. Since Sir Al Ferguson left in the late 2010s, they've really fallen off a cliff. And I don't know if they're a defensive counter-striking team. I don't know if they're a possession team. And they don't know either. They just got, yet again, yet another new manager, Eric Ten Hag. And with the questions about his authority right now in the best teams, with their arguably best striker outside of Ronaldo, Anthony Martial, out for this game, and with no clear direction, I feel like this is the point where they start to just throw spaghetti at the wall, trying to figure out some kind of style that works rather than having a cohesive strategy like Brighton's going to have. Brighton knows exactly what they want out of this season. That's to stay in the Premier League. I think another thing about Brighton is they punch above their weight. They have the the fifth fewest payroll, fifth smallest payroll, and they have the 10th best odds. They're the, considered the 10th best team. So they're already a team that's considered able to punch above their weight. What better opportunity than opening day of the season at Old Trafford to punch a disgruntled, disarrayed Manchester United right in the mouth. I feel like this has 1-1 written all over it, and 1-1 into an American fan might not sound like crazy. That's what they call in Europe or in England a famous result. Maybe 2-1 would be a famous result, but it would be a big deal regardless. 1-1 Brighton has all the ammo to stay in this game. Admittedly, this is more of a United fade than a play on Brighton, but I still like this play wholeheartedly. Endorse the best bet. Let's make it a double best bet. Brighton, plus the goal, lay $1.22. You mentioned buying an on and off the half point. It's got to be worth more than 20 cents. Plus 110, minus 0.75, not as good. Get the minus one, minus 120, especially closer to tip off. I kick off, I imagine United will be the team that gets the public money. So take advantage of that. But getting a goal, I like Brighton to keep it close. So that is my best bet as well. Double best bet, Brighton plus the one. Let me save you guys a little bit of money. Coupon code, shout out to Mary for getting this coupon code for me. It made me smile. Rivers25, R-I-V-E-R-S-2-5. That'll get you 25% off anything at pregame.com. Let's say you're interested in Fezzik's football package. Pretty famous football handicapper, arguably the best in the world, the only guy to ever win 
the Westgate, formerly the Hilton, most famous football contest in the world. Not once, but twice. No one's ever done that. Steve Fezzik has. And you can find his stuff at pregame.com. And you can get 25% off any of it with the promo code RIVERS25. Why Rivers? Well, guy I know fairly well, not as well as I'd like, Mackenzie Rivers hit 57.3% across all or sports over 330 plays in the football, basketball, and college basketball seasons this year. Obviously, majority of those picks were the NBA, hit 57% over 300 picks. I was pretty happy about those results. Translation, by the way, I am McKenzie. Didn't tell you that, but that's the guy I know. It's me. And I expect to do that again. I have all kinds of databases that I didn't have last year. I have all kinds of knowledge, insights, and lessons that I've taken from the last year. And as happy as I was with 57% over 300 plays, I think I can provide more plays and better results in this upcoming season, starting with the NFL. So check me out. I have my football and basketball package up. I will be releasing European soccer betting plays as we get into the season. And by the way, the one sport I don't really have a great handle on, my man right here, Griffin Warner, can take care of you. Catch him out on pregame.com with his baseball picks and other picks. So that's our best bet, our double best bet. Check it out. Manchester United is going to tie or possibly lose. We like Brighton plus one. And the Premier League, Germany and France, will all be underway. We'll all be mid-season next time we talk to you guys. And next Friday, La Liga, Spanish League. That gets going. So very excited to get into this European soccer mode full force. Until then, for my man Griffin Warner, I am Mackenzie. Check us out at pregame.com, and we will see you next week.